from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. Francis is out on assignment. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. General Charles Q. Brown is the new nominee for Air Force Chief of Staff. If confirmed, Brown will succeed General David Goldfein, who is retiring. Brown currently serves as the commander of Pacific Air Forces. Kenneth Braithwaite is President Trump's nominee for Secretary of the Navy. The president also nominated Victor Mercado as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities. James Anderson, who held that role, is expected to become Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Defense News reports the nominations are part of a push to fill key vacancies in the Defense Department. The Navy has a new education strategy focused on helping sailors understand emerging technologies. The goal is to increase the cyber and technical knowledge of sailors and Marines at all levels. FedScoop reports the strategy itself uses technology like online and long-distance learning. The Defense Department has five new principles for ethical use of artificial intelligence. AI in government now needs to be responsible, equitable, traceable, reliable, and governable. Kirk Everson is Managing Director of the Federal Advisory Practice at KPMG. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Marjorie. Great to be here. What do you think are the significance of these principles and the fact that DOD has, has released them? Well, I think what it does is it sets essentially the groundwork uh, for uh, an ethical framework that can be applied across, I'll say, the life cycle of development, uh, training, management, deployment, and feedback loops for any kind of AI or machine learning model. So anything you do as it relates to artificial intelligence or machine learning will have those fundamental principles involved in, in the deployment of AI, whether it's uh, through a weapon system or through a non-weapon system. Are these essentially the principles that, that you were expecting the Pentagon to put out? Is there anything surprising here? I think what it does, no. I mean, I think the DOD's uh, five principles are really all-encompassing and, and frankly can be applied to any scenario where you're developing machine learning algorithms or, or AI. And, and I think what's important to remember is that the, the DOD really needs to have a perspective on this because you know, you, you want to close that trust gap. A lot of folks think about, you know, the, the, the autonomous weapon systems and the ability to apply machine learning to, to certain scenarios that relate to that. I think it's important that the DOD has to close a trust gap that's out there. Um, and I think these, these principles essentially could be applied to DOD, the civilian agencies, or even, or even industry. This is really just a first step, right? I assume you're going to be watching for how they how they implement them. What are you expecting there? So the Defense Innovation Board, uh, along with the five principles, actually has 12 implementation recommendations. Uh, and those implementation recommendations obviously uh, essentially roll up to those five principles. But I think it's important to to note that these recommendations uh, is really going to be the stress test of how well these principles are applied to the DOD's uh, framework for ethical AI. You know, things like um, traceability, right? So is, is the DOD going to have the testing and evaluation infrastructure in place to be able to test uh, machine learning algorithms? And, and for example, DARPA has an explainable AI uh, methodology where essentially anyone developing AI can actually determine 
how it's working, explain to folks that aren't technical. And, and so these are examples of how the DOD can actually implement those 12 implementation recommendations from the DIB. What kind of time frame do you think we're looking at here to, to see that implementation process? Yeah, I think it's going to take some time, you know, just like you have to stress test a carrier, you got to stress test AI, right? So uh, the application of these principles to me have already been occurring. Uh, they've already got the AI steering committee. They've already hired Alka Patel to help them lead that. that. And then they also have formalized these principles through memorandums. So I think the next year will be telling to see how the Jake is really going to move out on this. I, I think what's important to remember, again, that this DOD is a large organization and you know the the the, uh, the methodology of steering a carrier right it takes a long time to move an organization however they're already doing things today to implement these things so I think the next year will be telling as to how many of those 12 recommendations if they decide to do them will be implemented what do you think are the direct um, effects on industry are they are they expecting contracts to look differently look different or, or conversations to go a different way what, how will this play out so I, I think what's important uh, to to note uh, General Shanahan and CIO uh, DZ uh, talked about how there will be non-binding contract language in um, in contracts that involve these types of technologies and so what they've explained is that really starts the conversation around uh, ethical AI and, and it allows for industry to basically say we hear you we've got a framework in place and and we know how to operate in this environment for example you know we, we've got our own AI and control framework that we apply to any kind of machine learning project that we do from development to training data to feedback to monitoring endpoints to making sure they're secure and reliable and traceable um, I think a lot of organizations already have those in place but this really allows for a more um, formalized dialogue with DOD and industry do you think companies that have frameworks and, and companies that don't are going to be sort of checking how theirs compare to DoD or coming up with some in, in relation to that? I, I think human nature uh, requires that. You know, how do we compare to what DoD came up with? But, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to be something where they see, well, maybe we have a gap here or maybe we have a gap here. But the, the, the process that the DIB went through and, and that the DoD adopted was really robust. And so I think what they've come up with is a really strong foundation from which to have that discussion. And I think industry could look at that and say, oh, wait, that's something that we would like to do. So, so for example, governable, that's a very specific um, principle around de-escalating an AI algorithm, right? So, well, wouldn't that be an, a, a principle to have in the industry to say, okay, if I have an AI algorithm that's giving me marketing data or customer data, and it's not really giving me what I need, can you de-escalate that algorithm? So I think there, there's some, definitely some discussions to be had there. Is there any accountability built into the process? I mean, is there any sort of methodology they can use to look at, you know, AI being used in the department and say, does it match these mm -hmm. principles that we laid out? Yeah, I think having that framework is important. So when they in embark on a new effort, I mean, the DOD is, is, is really good at test and evaluation. I think any weapon system that goes into production is tested and, 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 and proven over and over again before it's released. And I think that test and evaluation process will be important. So throughout that test and evaluation process, leveraging not only these new five principles, but essentially the, the ethical frameworks that have already been in place. I mean, there's things like the law of war um, and, and frankly, the US Constitution that the DOD has always been uh, abhorrent to. So I think that's gonna be something that they, they, they're kind of already doing, but these principles will formalize it a bit as it relates to AI and machine learning. Just about 45 seconds to go, um, you, you hinted at, obviously, DOD is a very large organization. Is it going to take some time also for these principles to kind of you know, get out of the Pentagon and get to other contracting commands, mm -hmm. combatant commands, that, that kind of thing? I think a lot of, uh, I, well, the memorandum's been, been, been approved, and so I think it's official. These are the five principles. 
Uh, each of the services are developing their own AI strategy. The Air Force has done so, and the other services have already looked at that. And so I think what they're going to do is look back and say, okay, how do our principles align to the DODs? And, you know, it's rank and file. We're going to get in line with what the DOD says. So I think, frankly, civilian agencies could look at these DOD principles, too, as, as a potential blueprint. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Marjorie. Up next, how Congress could potentially do more for defense acquisition reform by doing less. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look at recent legislation and what should happen next. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Fiscal year 2020 National Defense Authorization Act includes 77 new provisions on acquisition policy. The average over the last five bills has been 79 new provisions. Brian Smith is a senior fellow at George Mason University's National Security Institute. He's also a technical advisor at Beacon Global Strategies. He wrote an article urging Congress to stop passing new legislation on defense acquisition. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Marjorie. Thank you. What has been happening here? Why are we seeing so uh, much legislation focused on acquisition reform? Well, um, the current body of laws and regulation we have uh, were designed to protect the taxpayer from fraud, waste, and abuse. But in doing that, we've overachieved. And so we really have um, some very burdensome, a burdensome corpus of laws and regulations. And Congress was looking to relieve a lot of that. But then also, they're still working on the oversight on, uh, on that result in provisions that do tend to be burdensome. Why do you think this has been essentially too much? Why, why did you sort of make the case you did? Yeah. Well, um, you mentioned the mountain of new provisions. And so it's probably time to take a breather, uh, to allow DOD and industry to fully implement those provisions, allow Congress to learn from that before they launch the next round, and for the market force to operate. Do you think it's essentially, um, you know, been so much that they can't really see the effects or that DOD can't see the effects because they're so busy figuring out ways to implement this? Well, there certainly is a lot of busyness. Mm -hmm. uh, but even if the Congress were to take a sabbatical, it wouldn't mean that they would go on recess and that DOD would get a hall pass. There'd be plenty to do. Uh, Congress uh, can be even more effective sometimes with its oversight hat on than as a legislative body. And so I would think Congress would take this sabbatical, this time to hold DOD's feet to the fire to fully and smartly implement the reforms that are already enacted, and then to uh, assess that progress and evaluate new ideas in terms of current progress. And finally, I think that, that Congress and DOD both need to work with the defense acquisition force to incentivize it to take the most in the flexibilities that already exist in the FAR and in, in law and not adopt a belt and suspenders approach to layer on risk aversion. So there's plenty to do there. What do you think would be the advantages of taking that sort of recommended breather and, and taking a look at it? Where, where would that put us in a year or so, you think? Well, um, 
there's really a, a strategic rationale that underlies the, the uh, recommendation for a break, too. Let me just talk to that a second. Um, you know, there's been an erosion, most people would, would say, in, defense, in the U.S. advantage in a number of defense areas, hypersonics, uh, counter space capabilities, AI, 5G. Well, the national defense strategy says the way to prevail in that kind of high tech, uh, uh, great power competition is to protect and harness the national security innovation base. So protection, that means avoiding laws and policies that can inadvertently harm that base, that can cause innovative companies to exit the DOD market completely um, in favor of more business-friendly commercial markets, or the cause them not to enter in the first place. Harnessing that innovation base is largely about staying out of the way. And so that, that pause would, would allow uh, those uh, existing reforms to be smartly, fully implemented and um, do the learning that's required before going forward and then also to, to let those market forces operate. How, how open do you think Congress would be to that idea? It seems like they have been very focused on, on this kind of legislation. Well, they, they probably will not fully stop <laughs> And in fairness, there have been uh, some, some really helpful provisions they've enacted. But I think they may even be experiencing a little bit of acquisition reform fatigue. And um, uh, certainly defense and industry, I think, would welcome that breather. And Congress may as well. Do you think this is personality-driven at all. Obviously, um, you know, Representative Mac Thornberry has made this kind of an issue and, and will be no longer the head of, or no longer on the House Armed Services Committee um, when he leaves Congress. Does it all, does that matter? Well, personality is always politics in <laughs> part. So it does matter, but there, well, uh, there is a need to just ensure that we are making the most of that, uh, of that acquisition workforce and, and that body of laws and regulations we have. So there is still going to be impetus to continue to look at how to, to streamline, deliver faster, and, and be more efficient, sure. With, with just about a minute to go, um, any feedback from the Pentagon? Are you hearing any uh, Pentagon leaders say that they need this breather or that these, these laws are creating a burden? Um, not directly, but um, I think the Pentagon uh, is going to look in the long term to uh, probably the last frontier of acquisition reform, which is the budget process. And uh, um, one idea I heard is to uh, consolidate all these hundreds of budget lines into meaningful portfolios that are managed by empowered program executive officers. Uh, for that to happen, Congress is going to have to relinquish some budget authority. Uh, so that's where the Pentagon is really going to need Congress to help with acquisition reform. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Marjorie. Up next, Amazon Web Services wants more information from the Defense Department about the JEDI decision. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the kinds of documents they're looking for and the next steps for DOD. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv.
Amazon Web Services wants the Defense Department to provide more documents about the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract. AWS lawyers say the Defense Department has produced a, quote, cherry-picked record. Billy Mitchell is Editor-in-Chief at FedScoop. Thanks for being here, Billy. Of course, thank you. Can you catch us up? What's the latest on this uh, ongoing lawsuit? Uh, we're two years later, uh, <laughs> still in the courts. Um, the latest, as, as I'm sure most people know, is that the court has stopped any work under the procurement. Um, and at this point, they're trying to build out the administrative record, uh, something that usually takes a couple weeks in any kind of bid protest. Uh, it, it's been about 90 days at this point, but they're still building that out. Um, a, as you said, um, AWS is concerned with the amount of files, documents, materials that the Defense Department has produced, wants to see more, um, and that, that administrative record is kind of the body of evidence that the DOD is saying, this is how we de determine how we evaluate this contract. So um, AWS is hoping to find out some things in there. I, I don't think necessarily they're saying that DOD is hiding something, but um, they're saying maybe they could be a little more forthcoming. What kinds of um, documents are we talking about here? It sounds like maybe it's some more casual interactions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's quite a variety. Um, there's two that uh, really stuck out in this most recent filing that uh, AWS filed in, within recent weeks. Um, one is uh, internal memos and such on um, high-ranking officials and their, their kind of uh, informational meetings, as, as you'll probably recall. Uh, Secretary Esper was reviewing this contract and went through a series of informational meetings that uh, was him catching up after he became the secretary, so they wanted to see that. Um, and then any kind of informational uh, uh, documents in, involving his recusal. And also another high-ranking official, Stacey Cummings, also recused herself from that. Um, and then on the other side, there's very informal uh, materials that, that AW wants to see, things like Slack uh, conversations, Google Docs, uh, any kind of communications that um, kind of happen informally that, that might suggest how people on uh, you know the source selection boards or whatnot came about deciding how, how they were going to pick the winner. And then what about um you know, interviews of top officials, what do they want there, if anything? Yeah, so the other side of that is, you know, they, they, they want the administrative record and then they, they're also asking for these depositions. So they, they, they want to, um, obviously AWS's entire case is that this thing is politically tainted, um, stemming from the president making comments um, and perhaps things going on behind the scenes, him meeting with uh, the defense secretary and other people who actually um, have control over this um, and it actually kind of permeating down into the source selection committee. So they wanted to depose President Trump. They wanted to depose uh, Secretary Esper, uh, former Secretary Mattis, and others, uh, Dana Deasy, the CIO, um, because they want to hear, you know, everything they can. I don't know. It's it's more of, in in my mind, a fishing expedition. They're trying. They don't know necessarily what they're searching for. They think there's something there, but there's not. Uh, maybe there's smoke. There's not necessarily fire. So they're hoping that in, in those depositions or in any of those records, they might be able to find something to more uh, readily support their case that there's political influence and that uh, DOD botched this evaluation. So a lot of this case is pretty unusual and these, these sure. deposition requests are, are particularly unusual to, to want to depose the president. Are you getting a sense so far of how likely it is that they'll get this information for the administrative record and or the depositions? So I think the, uh, the administrative record, that they, they'll probably get some more. Um, it, from what they filed, they said that the court has already asked DOD to file some of this stuff and that DOD just hasn't done it yet. Um, at this point, DOD um, can comply with that if they, if they kind of agree or um, they can wait for the court to make a decision. But my sense is that 
Um, I'm not going to pretend to be a legal expert. <laughs> There's a lot of um, um, things that, that the DOD can claim to exclude these documents, but for the most case, I, I think because, you know, if you're the DOD and you, you think this is in the national interest to get to this contract as quickly as possible, you want to play ball. You want to provide these documents. If you're not hiding something, go ahead and show it. I, I, there are um, legal statutes that say that they, they, there might be reasons why they don't want to in include these documents, but um, I think there will be. The depositions, that's a whole other ballgame. Getting the president to, to talk about a cloud computing contract, that would be, um, you know, for, for this small niche of the world in terms of D.C., it, it would be kind of earth-shattering. Sure. You know, um the the interesting thing is kind of that we're that that they got this win and having the contract on hold does that um, sort of incentivize DoD to maybe play ball more I mean that certainly seems like it could be read as a win for Amazon right I I I do read it as a win um, it, it it makes it seem like Amazon has a significant case at least in the judge's eyes that they said hey we're going to pause this thing because you know there's at least some sort of chance that if if we we overturn this thing we don't want to uh, cost the taxpayers or anybody involved any sort of um, money or, or damages. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, you know DoD sh should should want to play ball, um, but uh, you, it, it, it's it's really hard to say w what they're they're doing at this point. Um, I was a little surprised that they've been a little more selective, um, but this is also a legal battle. People you know have their own. Um, perceptions of, of what's going on in their own court. So you you see the little bit of back and forth. One day it's it's AWS. One day it's uh, the Justice Department on the behalf of the DoD. And um, on any given day, it seems like somebody's kind of up at that point. With just about 30 seconds to go, what can you tell us about the timeline? Do you have any expectations for when this case might be resolved? You know, I was looking at sort of the, the what what it normally takes for this kind of thing, and it's usually within a hundred days. Like I said earlier, it's it's about ninety day point now, and we're not even really halfway through what the the proceedings usually take. I think it's going to be at least several more months. Um, I've talked to other people who think you know even if this part ends here, there's going to be secondary sorts of protests or legal actions that could happen after that. Uh, I, this thing may, ne may never g actually get done, or it could take several <laughs> years, who knows, but uh, it's going to be a while before it's over. Thanks so much for being here, Billy Thank Mitchell. You. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.